adventurers, we've overhauled the Patreon page, adding in seven new reward types, everything from tarot readings to developmental editing to help you improve your story. So please take a moment to check that out if you'd like to help support us and the work we do. Thanks. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the MoCo Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. You may be familiar with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. As part of an ongoing series, every other episode we'll be exploring one of these 22 rules. You'll hear our connections, objections, exceptions, examples, and things you might not have considered when you first sat down to apply these principles. Pixar's Rule number 8. Finish your story. Let go, even if it's not perfect. In an ideal world, you have both. But move on. Do better next time. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. One, I feel like we've talked about this a little bit because we've talked about endings and how hard they are to stick and how satisfying they are when they stick. But this is really then us getting deep into the meat of endings. Yeah, um, kind of what we had mentioned before, um, I guess is a good starting place, is the idea that uh, you're always going to, hopefully, always going to look back and think, wow, that sucks. I'm so much better now. And that's always going to happen. If you never let go of your current story, the best you will be is where you are at now. And where, where you could be is looking back on that and thinking how much it sucked. It still sucks the same amount. It's just, did you grow or did you not let it go and therefore not grow? I and feel I like think that, that was there's also um, there's Robin. a common problem. Mm-hmm where people will rework like the first 20 pages or the first 20 strips or the first, you know, they'll get a beginning and then they'll rework it over and over and over again. And you see that in reboots a lot. I know it's a problem that a lot of writers have where they'll never, they'll, they'll just get so obsessed with polishing one piece that they'll never actually move beyond it. And psychologically, I think that there is something very, very important about moving all the way through every stage of a piece and not allowing yourself to go back. Um, Because I remember when I was finishing up Shades of Grey, there are actually different kinds of challenges and problems and processes that you emotionally, psychologically, intellectually go through when you are trying to tackle an ending versus trying to tackle a beginning or a middle. And it's hard to sort of describe exactly what that experience is but it is a it, I remember feeling how different finishing something felt versus the, the rest of the process I think it's really important that you experience it in order to learn how to finish something well um, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, say something a little controversial here but I don't think Joss Whedon knows how to end a project very well um, I think largely because they tend to get cancelled or something happens and he is not involved in the finishing of a project but there are very, very few stories he's actually written the ending of, and I feel like it shows. He's great at setting something up, he's great at that middle piece, he's really, really good at that twist, but I don't think he knows how to thematically finish out a story very well. He just doesn't have the practice. Well, and I think, yeah, it's a lot of his stuff has gotten canned, and but to be fair, um, 
I think the problem with Buffy's finale, honestly, was that Buffy had already ended, and Buffy had already ended in a really good position, and then Buffy kept going. Yeah. The the end of season five of Buffy, if everything had just ended there, Buffy sacrifices herself to save Dawn to stop Glory. Spoilers, by the way. <laughs> There, there, there has to be a moratorium point. on the, <laughs> the end of season five Spoiler, of a ten-year-old. What you don't think thirteen years is enough? Or yeah. is too, it, that 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 that's beyond the pale? Would yeah. it be a sporatorium? No, that's oh. a that's a moratorium on infectious spores. Oh, yes, okay. you're, um, you're you're thinking of a spoilatorium. Right. Oh, wait, that's where you. That's a mo- that's a emporium where you keep all your spoilers. Gosh, it can be both. It. It's a it's a synonym. <laughs> um. But no, but that would have been a great place because thematically Buffy was about sacrifice and thematically so much of the first five seasons were about Buffy weighing the cost of her random birth uh, gift in quotation marks versus her desire to have a normal life. And so for her to make that choice to sacrifice not just to be the slayer but to save her sister – would have been a great place to end it. And I know we wouldn't have gotten the musical episode if this had been true, but Buffy's problem illustrates what what my maxim for endings is, and that's you have to know when to end because mm-hmm. stories, especially in television, will have a place where they could end, and I think the problem is that when it's popular, they just want to keep going, and that can that can be as hard on an ending or as hard or as bad for a show's ending as if the show is canceled and has to end early. I think the uh, the way I've heard it best described is always leave them wanting more. Yeah. And yeah. In, in this case, it's not necessarily leave them wanting more because you didn't finish your story, but leave them wanting more because you went out on such a high note and you completed your story in such a good way that they want more stories in that universe. They want more stories with right. those characters, even if they're There's- dead. Yeah. So I, I guess the idea there is um, when, when the people say leave them wanting more, it's not don't complete your story. It's when your story is complete, end it. way. Yeah. Well, and it's, there is a, a quote from Cato, um, who was a famous Roman Republican and, and enemy of Julius Caesar, ultimately, um, who was asked, why are there no statues of Cato in Rome? And he responded, I would rather have people ask that than ask why there are. Right. And I think that that's, remember that. Remember the words of Cato. Now we're finally <laughs> classy and it's obscure Roman references that will bring us the big bucks. Um, <laughs> remember, th- remember that idea when you're, when you're deciding when to close because even if you're popular – now, if it's if it's the organic ending, if it's the right ending, go out on that and people will be banging down your door if you're popular to see what you do next. Yeah, yeah. Um, I and think I guess that's I think maybe a piece of it that's really important is the move on, do something new um, instead of sort of I think the temptation often comes into rehash or re- go back and often that can be exceptionally destructive to what you did in the first place. I was talking with someone about um, The Matrix the other day and how that first movie was just, had so many great ideas and thoughts and perspectives and and then they did the second and the third and they went, they undid their mystery and their mystery was a large part of what made their film work in the first place. And when they tried to pick it apart, 
and and got a little heavy handed with it, they actually undermined the value of the of the Matrix original. I think that if if the second two Matrix films had never existed, the original Matrix would be remembered with much more fondness as a classic than it is today. And there's Absolutely. a couple other franchises that do that, where it's just like they, by going back, by doing more, they act actively harm what had been done in the first place. Well, and, well, and go oh, on. go ahead. Okay. Um, well, we've we've talked before about protecting your franchise, protecting your uh, your intellectual property in that way, and how you can totally undermine your uh, your business by uh, doing that. Um, I think what you were saying earlier about how you need to move on. I think it's important because you will learn you will have something else just as salient to say as you did the first time if you go out and get more experience and try other things. Um, don't don't tell the same story twice. Tell a new story in the same universe that's just as important. But to do that, yeah. you have to experience something just as important. And, yeah, especially um, if you're... Oh, sorry, Corey. No, go. Especially if you're a novelist or you're a webcomic artist or you're doing whatever the hell we're calling Border this week is you can come back to it. You can, you can say, this story is done, go do something else, take up jogging, climb a mountain, write another comic, and then say, oh, you know what, I guess there's more in the tank. And come back to it knowing that you're doing it with a real story idea, not just trying to keep the golden goose, or the goose laying golden eggs. It's kind of funny because I've been having this experience lately. Um, because the exact process you just outlined, I've been through with the, um, the Frost stories that I wrote. Frost was a, uh, a belligerent, low-powered fae that managed to convince a lot of people that he was actually a lot more powerful than he was. And he was the main character that I ran in the OCT that I ran, uh, won. And I really loved that character, and he kind of stuck in my head. And I wrote a series of short fictions for a while that I called Frost in Germany, where he meets vampires and imps and all sorts of random things like that, and uh, gets beat the crap out of by most of them, because that's kind of his personality. And really enjoyed doing that and sort of came to a nice little sort of ending spot and then tried to keep it going, tried to push it past that ending spot. And the motivation sort of died and I got nostalgic the other day again for it. And I haven't written for this that short fiction for like six months. And I, I kept trying to sort of restart it because I, I, I was looking back and missing it and found that I could not go back. I just couldn't get back to that mental place. I don't have anything to say there right now. And maybe it is possible that years from now I will, but... Um, Instead, like a week after I had that really intense need to write something for it, um, I had a really cool dream. And now I'm like, dang, I want to turn this into like a young adult fiction. And it's totally separate from anything else I've done. And how interesting this would be. And so it's instead of sort of lingering in that old place, it's definitely healthier, I think, to keep going to a new place. Try something else on and see how that fits. Well, and I, I'd say two things that I thought of, um, two other rules I'll bring up in a second. But as for that, yeah, it's there is there's only so much you can write on anything at any given time, I feel. And that's why I always have 
five projects going at any given time because otherwise because I have to keep myself interested because I have just this side of ADD. So I need to make myself go, ooh, shiny, and then write on that for a while, and ooh, shiny, and go back and circle my projects. But even if you're a really focused writer there's or, or artist, there's only so much you can do on any given topic until you're kind of spent on it. And that's the beauty of the internet is that you can leave it for a while. You can put it on hiatus and link to a new website, and then on the new website, if in a year or two, you know, your break has rejuvenated you and you want to go back, you can go back. It's not like television where you have to justify it to a network why we care about it and you might not be able to get any of your old stars back. You know, none of your people are going anywhere unless you let them go somewhere. So you can always come back to it. Although with the internet as an example – the inability to finish things is on display frequently um, to the point yes. that the idea that I actually finished a webcomic is a rarity because it happens <laughs> so – it just doesn't happen very often. I can name one other webcomic that I've read that finished, and that's it. There's some that are just still going, and – those I can put on a hand, like maybe two hands I can name. And the rest of them are just sort of this littering of beginnings and middles with no ends. Often to well, the point of being exceptionally frustrating. I guess I'm wondering, why is it that we don't finish more? Why is it that this needs to even be a rule in here? I think for the internet, because there's no one saying, okay, you have to be done now, we're out of money. Um, I think honestly, the internet with its with its inability to, or with its its lack of anything telling us when to stop, unless we want to stop paying for the website, we we can keep going forever, and then we get so burned out that we throw our hands up in the air. We put up a comic where everybody dies, or we don't put up anything at all, and we walk away. As opposed to a book where you need to know if you're – unless you're one of about four living writers, if you're getting upwards of a thousand pages, you need to be done. I think and that's a, a television show where when you hit your, 20, your 22nd episode, they're going to stop letting you make episodes for a while. Mm -hmm. I think that's a piece of it. The other bit you said – because you, you mentioned nobody's there telling you to stop. Um, also on the internet, nobody's there telling you to keep going. And I think a lot of people get into it and they realize it's a lot mm. harder than they thought. You know, they have enough passion to get them through that first part or maybe into the middle part, but not enough to finish it out. They don't know how to uh, set up, lead up to what would be an ending. and Or when they figure it out, they realize it's going to be a lot more work than they uh, want, intend, or are willing to do. And I, I feel like that's that's a big thing. It's once you realize that it's not a hobby, it's a job, or once you realize that uh, it's going to take way more effort and you've lost the fun, you stop doing it. You being anybody in this case, not So is you. it is it just a lack of discipline most of the time, do you think? Or is there also maybe a fear of finishing? Or is it just the passion just runs out? Both. I mean, people get busy too. Mm -hmm. Like, life happens. And... Um, it comes down to priorities a lot of the time, I feel. It, you, 
people will say, okay, well, I've got this thing going on, and uh, what's a priority? And a lot of the times they're not going to make that a priority because, well, one, uh, other people don't value it the way that they do, and uh, two, it doesn't put food on the plate, uh, on the table, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a, definitely a piece of it. Um, is it a lack of discipline? Yes and no. For some people, I think it definitely is a lack of discipline, but I think more it's just a uh, it's a priorities thing. And I'm going to be honest, society doesn't value uh, art that isn't paying your bills. Yeah, I can't help but feel like there's more to it than that, because there's a lot of serial starting and starters. Well, I think people, people will get start a project too. and dump another one, and they'll never, they'll they'll develop a lot of skills for starting projects, but no skills for ending a project. Why do you think that is? You know, I think part of well, it is that when you start a project, you're in a honeymoon phase at first. It's just it's fun and it's interesting, and you're exploring new things. And I think that that's usually also um, you haven't you haven't started to de- delve into yourself through the project much yet you haven't gotten to the scary stuff yet where you run into a challenge or a deeper issue that you're you are unconsciously working through in your work and it bogs you down and you hit that hard spot and it becomes very difficult to keep going and it's much easier to fall in love with a new story than it is to stick it out with the old one and work through those problems and find out what makes it tick and what makes you tick. But just, you know, I mean, it's, it's like a relationship. Um, but I think just like people that are willing to actually work with a partner and develop communication skills and develop uh, a more intimate connection, those relationships can become much deeper and stronger than a relationship where as soon as the glow is gone, you dump it and move on. Alternately, there's there's the opposite side of that, which is somebody is doing it strictly as a hobby on a lark, and they don't have anything deeper to say. Mm. So when when you kind of hit that, and you're like, oh well, sometimes people have a hard time maintaining this relationship, developing it with themselves, and exploring that scariness. Well, if there's nothing to explore, you get bored. So if they're doing it kind of like, well, you know, I'm a, I I have fun doodling in class. Let's see if I can turn that into something online. And it turns out the answer is yes, but only if you keep going and you've got nothing to say. Yeah, I guess that's true. Not all, not all concepts have the legs that we think that they're going to. Right. And I, I believe many of them do. Most of them have more than people give them credit for. But like you were saying, when the honeymoon is done and it starts becoming work, do you care enough? And again, I think it's, it's, it's all of these things. It's the lack of people telling you you have to the lack of anyone telling you when to stop there's a you know the passion dying out or it not having the legs you thought and ultimately as we said before endings are hard if endings were easy we would you know the list of of terrible endings wouldn't be long if endings were easy everyone would do it but it takes not just having a good idea for the ending and not just knowing what your ending is, but knowing when to do it, knowing how to build it up and, and, and pulling it. And I think the other thing that the internet lets you do is because when you said there's only one other that you can think of, uh, before I go on very quickly, who were you thinking of Robin? Um, Faith Aaron Hicks did demonology one Oh one. 
and okay. finished that. And that was hugely influential to me. And part of why, when I set out to do my story, I said, by God, I'm going to finish this because I want to be like her. So she's gone on to do a lot of, um, she typically does short, like graphic novels in the true sense where it's uh, an encompassed story in one volume. And she's in a whole bunch of different things, um, which of course immediately all flee from my right. brain. But I know that but, there's. I'm going to look them up now. See, and I <laughs> what I thought of was, um, uh, Queen of Cups ended. Not Queen of Cups. What's the um, Queen of Wands? The um, um, something positive picked up a, str- a character from another webcomic that closed. Yes. That name is escaping me, and I'm. Uh, it's tarot related. I'm in the right area. <laughs> um, something like that. Uh, uh, you're talking about uh, charisma. Yes. Uh, no. Um, um, not charisma. Um, charisma's the the. Yeah. No. Um, no charisma's not the the immigrant from another webcomic. No charisma's. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm trying to remember what her name is. Oh well. Point being is is yeah he he picked that character up after that right comic but ended. that that one ended um and what i actually thought of was um okay it's the it's called queen of wands um what i thought of when you said nobody else is close is i thought of i read the comics um i read um Oh God! Now it's happening to me. Yeah, I know. Like, like I have all of her, like not all, but almost all of her books on my shelf, and my brain immediately is like, "Oh God! Oh God! Something with the zombies! Something with David, friends!" David, uh, the one that I thought of is David Willis, who did um, Roomies, which turned into um, another comic, which turned into, which turned into It's Walkie, which turned into. Uh, Walking and Joyce, and which spun off an alternate universe dumbing of age, as well as the first one eventually turning into Short Pact. And what I th- what I think is interesting is his universe that st- when you know Rumi's it's Walking you Walking and Joyce Short Pact is still going on and is still written for three times a week. But each one of those projects had a beginning and an end essentially as that phase of it moved um, as it started off a, a, a joke, a strip about college roommates, which then started going down an alien route. And so roomies kind of ended and, and the story changed. So from a certain perspective, he's ended several comics, even though each of those character, many of those characters, the ones that are not dead, um, are continuing on in ongoing series. And that's something interesting that the internet lets you do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another person that does this, and I've always admired it, but probably will never be able to replicate it for myself, uh, is Evan Dom. He does, he's done a variety of different stories. Um, Rice Boy, he's currently working on Vatu. Um, Order of Tales is another one. And, Similarly, they're Rice Boy, Order of Tales, Vatu, they're all separate, distinct stories. But they all happen in the same universe. They just happen in drastically different time periods from one another. So it's sort of an interesting way to go about it because, like, Rice Boy is very surreal and cerebral. 
and the environment has has a lot of kind of abstract bizarre elements that you don't see reflected uh in a different like order of tales but they're you know they have some crossover characters that appear in all of those different um environments so it's sort of this weird uh combination of environments but drastically different stories and and places which i think is kind of brilliant so I had two more rules that I was going to come up with. Oh right! Mm-hmm. Oh, before you before you do this, yeah. I just wanted to say what I found with the <laughs> the Faith Aaron Hicks books. Oh good! I wanted to read them because it was really bothering me that I couldn't remember the names. Um, she's done Zombies Calling, The War at Ellesmere, Brain Camp, Friends with Boys, um, and The Adventures of Superhero Girl, which is uh, an Eisner winning. I think it's Eisner. Yeah. Eisner winning uh, comic, so Ooh. she's done quite a bit. She also got did the Last of Us American Dreams graphic novel. Nice. Illustrated it, so she often is. Sometimes she illustrates, sometimes she does both. Um, but her finishing, you know, Demonology One Hundred One. I think it that that ability to finish something is reflected in all the different work she's done since. So. So two other rules. And they're kind of related. One, you don't have to tie up everything. Mm-hmm. Two, don't get cute. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Okay, so uh, I see what if you I mean, s- yeah. if I say Tommy Westfall, do you know what that means? No. Okay. Well, we need to stop being friends, and that's sad. No. Um. So at the end of Saint Elsewhere which was a medical drama, kind of the first of the wave of medical dramas. Um, they had a final episode, as most TV shows do, where they revealed that the entire show that you had been watching was apparently in the daydreams of an autistic child staring into a snow globe. No! Right. Yes. The, the, this this leading to the unified theory of television. I, I, I right. know what this you're is the about. Tommy Westfall universe. Yeah. This is where it comes from. Where and 80% the, for of those all of shows take place it, in the same universe and it's in this kid's head. Yeah. Right. If you if a, the Tommy Westfall universe refers to Saint Elsewhere had a lot of crossovers with other shows, um, which in it turn was the had 80s. crossovers with other shows. Right. Who right through modern so, television. Yeah. Anything that has touched something in the Tommy Westfall universe must therefore be in the Tommy Westfall universe. And I got to tell you, this kid is into some sick shit because um, Munch, the, the detective, yeah, detective from, Munch from Special Homicide Victims who, Unit. Who, yeah, he's on SVU now. He was originally from Homicide. Right. So all of, all, and he was, he crossed over with the other Law and Orders. He crossed over with Arrested Development. I think he's been on um, like eight or ten shows as Detective right. John Munch. I believe he has the record for having played the same character in the most different shows. Right. And so this kid, this autistic kid who was sitting staring into a snow globe, is also thinking about, you know, 12, 15 seasons of horrific sex crimes and wisecracking New York detectives. And this kid needs help. Get him away from the snow globe. But yeah, that this the the end of this well-respected, well-liked show 
went crazy. Well, yeah, they and didn't then, know what to do, is my guess. Uh, well, and then there's – and that's part of the you don't have to tie everything up. So to on my on my role of spoiling things, and we should put in a spoiler alert at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> on my role of spoiling things, compare the endings of Star Trek TNG to the ending of Quantum Leap. Okay. Neither one wraps up everything, but one kind of half-acidly does, and the other doesn't even try. Consequently, no one throws things at the screen during All Good Things, the ending of Star Trek TNG. That's true. I mean, it's very good, and it's well-respected. It's considered to be one of the best endings ever. Personally, I really like the ending of Quantum Leap, because they don't wrap up everything, but they do kind of try to explain what's going on, and that is... That, and there's that is a risk. Yeah, and that's the thing is that that one draws a lot of mixed emotions. In that, at the end of um, Quantum Leap, essentially, it it ends with the words. Um, I forget the main character's full name. Sam, whatever his last name was. Sam Beckett. Sam Beckett never leapt home. Yeah. And. That's it. It, There's some wrap-up for Al. God, as a bartender, kind of talks to him. And he leaps on to his next leap. But then we find out, nope, he never got home. And so that, that was kind of trying to do, well, before it. But that was trying to accomplish the same thing as the Star Trek TNG ending, where at the end of it, they've resolved that issue. They've kind of put a thematic cap on the show, they've ended it in the same way it began with a big Q episode dealing with humanity's morality and time and what they can become. And then Picard goes and joins his senior officers for a poker game. And you get the sense, oh, yeah, they're going to keep going. There are more adventures. I've seen kind of the wrap up of this stage of their lives, but I don't need to see more. Right. And, and in that, while it provided no ending really it provided closure mm-hmm. and I, that's what i think people complain about um quantum leap is well, that it it didn't provide either right although um ish like i said i really really like it because i feel like it's uh it was true um it, I, I guess for there are many people who are probably listening to this who've never seen quantum leap and have no intention of ever doing so but um, the, the main idea is that the main character is leaping to different points in time and inhabiting the body of somebody who is living in that time period. So everybody thinks that he's whoever lived then, and he has to solve some sort of wrong that went uh, wrong in that uh, time period. And uh, he doesn't know why, why he's doing it. Basically, it was a science experiment that got hijacked by some intelligence that he's not privy to. And in the end, I guess, yeah, in the last episode, they reveal that it's God. Um, but, uh, what I really liked about the ending of that one was less the idea that, that they explained it. Oh, well, turns out it was God and you've been working for God this whole time. That's hit or miss. But what I really, really liked about it was he spends the entire show trying to get home. Like that's his goal. And in the end, he realizes that the good he's been doing is much more important than his own personal, uh, um, well-being and, and life. And, uh, 
comes to the realization that not only is he not going home, but that his task will become harder as as he goes. It'll be just become more and more difficult, but the that that he will be able to rise to the challenge and be able to to uh, to overcome these challenges and make people's lives better. And that's great. That's a great message. Um, I thought it was really really well done, and that's why I like that ending for that show. Um, I, I I guess I'm kind of. Uh, in in that the the boat where I feel like that wasn't ruined, but Star Trek: The Next Generation kind of did because they ended up having four movies after that. Well, and none of yes, them provide a satisfactory w- ending to the Star Trek uh, canon. And I will give you that 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 the good ending of the show was kind of wrecked by the fact that then they had one pretty good movie, one really good movie, and two pretty crappy movies. Right. And unfortunately, the two pretty crappy movies were the last two before they rebooted the entire universe. Exactly. And so I, I guess that's another thing is, is um, do you have something new to say? Is it time to leave these characters? I mean, the reason why they made those films is because, you know, back in the early 90s, Star Trek was huge. It was enormous. It was such such a uh, cultural phenomenon at the time that the idea that um, they wouldn't make money off of doing films was was absurd. So they did them. They didn't have to do them particularly well. Uh, some some of them they kind of did. Some of them they definitely didn't. But um, my my point is, is they didn't have a story to tell. They were doing it specifically because of of a financial uh, gain sort of thing. Um, well, and then by the last one, they did have a story to tell, and it was the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, but they did that again like two years ago. Right, and I was so, less, even less thrilled by that one than I was when I realized Insurrection was the Wrath of Khan. Sure. I just... And I can, I can see that. I, I ended up liking Into Darkness more than Nemesis, but... Write a new story. That, that, that's another conversation, though. Um, my point is, is well, that... I, I think it's actually linked. Write okay. a new story. Yeah. It's fin- Finish not just in the sense of finish your current work but finish in the sense of don't go back and redo and rework the same thing make something new create something new and put that into the world right um the the way i was going to link it is uh what was it a couple months ago disney announced that they're going to do a sequel to the incredibles and I remember when uh, they asked the question of Brad Bird, who was the director of the first one, what, they were, what the plan for the franchise was. He basically said, we're not going to do another Incredibles unless we have a good story to tell. Um, however, this announcement of Incredibles 2 coming out right on the heels of Frozen is kind of suspicious in terms of do they have a new story to tell? Well, especially since it was also or are they going a to... whole bunch of sequels, sequels, sequels. Yeah, with, with Planes and, and uh, Cars 2. and It seems to be kind of their thing now to kind of go into sequel territory, which is something that well, Pixar to be, never really explored. To be fair, besides... Okay, I was about to say, besides Toy Story and Cars, what have they sequelized? But then I remembered they prequelized monsters. I'm willing to give them a little bit of a pass on Cars... Only because I, they've basically admitted that the only reason they do it is because Cars writes the checks. Um, because there is so much money coming from that merchandising. But, yeah. It is frustrating, and hopefully they're doing it for good reasons. But Right. I guess my point is, is 
Um, like I said, Brad Bird said he wouldn't return to the project unless he had something new to say, and he is returning to the project, which implies that he has something new to say. That said, uh, and the other good sign, I think, is, is that he took time. It's, what, uh, going to be eight... You know, it's been eight years since Incredibles came out, and now it's going to be another two or three while they develop this project. So that, that that's some space. That's some time. That's definitely enough time to have gone, done other things. I mean, Brad Bird directed a whole bunch of films, uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, um, a, a few others that evade me. But um, the fact is, is he's gone out and he's tried very, very different things than what he had already experienced on Incredibles. And that that's a good sign. But do we trust Pixar and Disney these days to be doing it for the right reason? I I maybe it's just I'm a cynical, but I'm starting to get worried about Sure. About and it. I, 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 it doesn't surprise me that the answer for a lot of people is no. That's okay. Until they prove us wrong, yeah, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. But I feel like this is sort of off topic. Um, I just meant in us terms of off topic. No, 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 no. I, the, re- the reason why I specifically brought this up is because do we feel like um, in this situation, because because they went and they ended Incredibles, let it go, right? For for all of its uh, glory and flaws let it into the world, and it's mostly not flaws, which is great. Um, but the reason why you let it go is so you can move on and write something else. Now they're coming back to this well. Is it time? Is it not? Did they let it go? That's what I'm trying to ask. Well, I can't answer it. I mean, I haven't seen it, so I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I, I was just asking for speculation. I Uh-oh. I mean, I know you can't tell me, but I don't know. I guess I'm not all that eager to have... I know people were really excited for an Incredibles sequel. And pre- precisely because of the, you know, leave it alone. I've, I guess I've seen too many uh, franchises ruin themselves, wreck themselves, where it was sort of like, you know, I was happy with one film. I didn't need more films. In fact... How, now that I have more films, it's hard for me to go back and enjoy what I used to enjoy before I knew that this existed. Um, Pirates was another one. Pirates of the Caribbean. That's, I go back and I look at you know the first film, and it's still a really fun little film. But everything that came after it just sort of drug away at the enjoyment and that the first one created. To the point where every time I watch the first one, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, this was so much more fun before any other things came out of it. Well, you're speaking specifically of uh, two and three, because we, we haven't seen Stranger Tides. Yeah, that's, that's how bad well, they th- got. There's a reason we haven't seen Stranger Tides, and that's because they were abusive of our trust with, uh, with Dead Man's two Chest. Two and three. And, uh, yeah. And I guess abusive with one's trust, that's what I'm worried about. Right. Well, and that's what I meant earlier when I said, are people protecting their intellectual property? Are you releasing something or doing the right thing by by continuing in that place? Um, Sometimes I can say, yes, they are. Yeah, sure, absolutely. That's great, because they have another new story to tell. Um, I'm thinking, like, with video game franchises, this is, like, a thing. Um, uh, 
and it's really, really weird there because typically video game franchises will uh, outsource a sequel to another studio. So it'll have the same mechanics and look the same, but something is completely different about the writing and the ethos, and it just feels like a copy of the first game. I'm thinking specifically of uh, Bioshock 2 is basically a rehash of Bioshock 1 with a different philosophy slapped on. Um, and uh, what was the other word? Oh, Amnesia. Amnesia the Dark Descent was wonderful. Um, the, se- the sequel, A Machine for Pigs, was just not it cut from the same Well, but plot. that, at least, I think with Amnesia, it was, they weren't trying to do a, a sequel sequel. They weren't, in, in that it's, it's more like an anthology from what I understand. It was another studio taking a crack at using the same game mechanics to create a new story. And, and I agree, that was different the intent. Than, that was the intent, but in actuality what happened is it hurt the franchise. The, mm. the original game is lessened by the inclusion of an in-canon inferior sequel. Is it really that bad? I'd heard a lot of people liked <sighs> it's, it's definitely a lot more polarizing than the first one. The issue I had with it is it's not scary. The first game is terrifying. The second game is boring. And mm. that's not a good place to be. Well, I'm, I'm also thinking in, in these lines, uh, Mass Effect... Mm, yeah, and the absolutely. amount of goodwill that that third that third uh, game managed to burn right through. Yeah, to the point where they're the, you know they want to release something new in the universe, and I think that there's a lot of people that are they're excited, but they're sort of afraid at the same time. Absolutely, I know the uh, the studios basically said, yeah, we're having it in the same universe, but you know, the we're doing it in a way where. Uh, the Reapers aren't an issue. You don't have to worry about the universe having ended in Mass Effect uh, 3. Uh, so you, everything you loved about the series without all of the universe-breaking consequences, which says to me prequel or alternate universe, which I'm fine with, but the fact that you have to retcon like that in order to make your universe playable is not a good sign. Yeah. In which case, I think, you know, again, with this sort of finish, it is... Do something else. Yeah. You know, go somewhere else. But I guess the thought is, well, I can make money here. Well, so. uh, th- that's the thing that gets me about the video game stuff is, uh, at least with the in terms of uh, Bioshock and uh, Amnesia, they, they did do something else. They made the first game, then they went off and tried to do something completely different, but because the demand was still there in the market for the first thing, they asked a third party to continue that without their involvement. With uh, Bioshock, they moved straight from Bioshock to Bioshock Inf- uh, Infinite and let somebody else handle too. With Amnesia, uh, they moved on to a game called Soma, which is still not out, um, which looks pretty good, but um, the the quote-unquote sequel, they, they left to a third party. So I guess be careful with whom you entrust your franchise to, I guess. I mean, does the very concept of doing a franchise kind of fly in the face of, of finishing something? Not guess... necessarily, because look at some of the classic, some of the great stories that we that we talk about. Um, you know, uh, uh, Star Wars, the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're willing to accept stories that have multiple parts to them. But I think that the problem that you open yourself up to then is you need to, you're, 
you're increasing the number of endings that you need to stick because now you are not just saying this book will give you a story and themes and finish them. You are saying each of these three books will give you stories and themes and finish them and the whole work will give them to you. And if you miss on either of those, especially in the last book wrapping up both the overall arc and that book's individual arc, then it degrades the whole series. So it's not that it it flies in the face of, it just makes it more difficult. Right. Um, I mean, any television series is in the same boat, where it's we, we have to tell a whole bunch of stories. They all have to be thematically connected to the main thrust of our series, but they also have to be complete stories in and of themselves. And of course, especially with television, there's a lot of hit and there's a lot of miss. Either the individual story is so disconnected or doesn't complete its own arc that it's remembered as a bad hour of television. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't think uh, having a franchise is necessarily uh, flying in the face of this rule, but I, I do think it definitely presents its own unique challenges in regard to this rule, and I guess the reason why this is a rule is specifically so you can remind yourself of it, especially in difficult situations like juggling multiple stories within a canon. See, I think what it's intended for is more let go of perfectionism, mm, yeah. which I find it's interesting that we have barely even touched on in our well, discussion. Well, we could we could move there, yeah. But I do think that 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 is is more likely the intended uh, message. Reading the rule again, I think you're right. <laughs> but off tangent. Okay, so um, in this case, it's uh, you you spoke earlier about whether or not people should. Uh, kind of go back and revisit earlier work and constantly try to improve it and never move on mm-hmm. and how that that kind of killed a lot of projects that you've seen and it's really well, kind I mean, of a shame. The web comics are notorious for rebooting. Right. And a lot of it is our, our artist looks at previous work, goes, ugh, my art is so bad. My storytelling is so bad. I'm going to restart. I'm going to do it again. And this time I'll do it better. And I mean, I've seen comics go through a process where they do that and they just end up rebooting four or five or six times, and they end up covering roughly the exact same ground, and then they restart again. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen that they too. never get past that. And it after a certain point, you realize that it's like a project. It's it's, it's like this some sort of weird curse. Well, and almost. obviously it's a that can't be finished. Obviously, this rule applies in that situation where you just have to let it go and move on to, I guess in this case, the next chapter, the next page. And just keep pushing through with the same story, or let it go and start a new story entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely salient in that situation. Uh, I guess, um, like for me personally, the idea is um, when when you write something and you, you you stick it and you make it land. I, I guess the way to do it, the way to uh, let be able to let it go, is to have a deadline, whether it's self-imposed or imposed by somebody else. That way, there's a point where you have to let it go no matter what state it's in. I think that's a really, really good way to make sure that it gets let go. Are there any other techniques that you feel like help people get to that place? I was. This was one, something I did want to bring up is, is, you know, what skills are needed to finish? Because it's easy to say, well, just finish it. But we've all seen that endings are hard. Finishing things is hard. Um... And as a result, there has to be skills that can be practiced or cultivated 
that are different than other kinds of skills for finishing something. Exactly what those skills are is sort of <laughs> ethereal, hard to hard to pin down. Hmm. One that the what the what I just said was set a deadline for yourself unless one's already set for you. That's mm-hmm. that's a good one. And I do think that a lot of artists and creative people thrive on deadlines. Um, mo I I feel like it's hard for me to speak on this because I know that what I would say for finishing things is not going to be helpful to most people because I feel like I am an aberration when it comes to getting things done Mm. because I'm very, very stubborn and I'm very, very focused and um, I will just bullheadedly brute force my way through things and get them finished. And most creative people that I have met are not that personality type. And it, it sounds really elitist to just be like, we'll just get, have the grit to, to see it through. Just use your willpower. And if you, if you don't have willpower, then you're just lazy. Like, I know that's not true, um, but it, it does seem like a lot of artists sort of have an inability to buckle down. Um, so there must be a different way that because there are other other artists that don't have that sort of stubbornness that do finish things. Um, so their skill set must be different. And maybe that's... We talked about in a previous episode finding your creative space or making your creative space and how that is going to be different for different people. I think that finishing is also a skill that might be different for different people. Figuring out what will keep you moving and keep you motivated on a project even when it does become work. Um, And exactly, you know, how to do that for each individual person. I do remember reading a great uh, sort of comic article that talked about different ways that the uh, artist had thought about, had had tried to motivate themselves. And they talked about how they had tried um, bribing themselves. Like, I'll give myself a reward if I can finish this task or timing themselves. And what they found was that when they were putting all this pressure on themselves, it ended up creating a nasty feedback loop where the pressure was so strong that they wouldn't do the task. When they didn't do the task, they felt like a failure. When they felt like a failure, their energy and ability to do anything got less and less and less. So what they started trying to do is is, uh, they talked about how if you ask a kid to do a difficult task they're probably going to complain and whine and it's going to be miserable and it's going to take forever but if you make that exact same task into a game that is fun to do then the exact same activity suddenly gets done and it gets done very quickly and effortlessly Um, and so their theory or suggestion was to try and find a way to game your own process which I thought was a really interesting concept yeah, um, and that can certainly be effective for different types of people. Um, I can't speak for all artists on this sort of thing, but I think there's there was an initial draw to art as kind of a method of work avo- avoidance. If I'm mm. drawing, I don't have to do homework. If I'm you know writing, I don't have to to work on my projects. And um, I, I think that's a piece of it. I mean, not that it shouldn't be cultivated and that you shouldn't do that, but I think the idea is if, if one gets into this position where they're using art as work avoidance and then suddenly work is uh, art is work, nothing's going to get finished. Of course not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've spent your entire time specifically avoiding that situation. So I know that's an issue. 
I'm just... And that makes uh, actually that puts it into a lot of context. It makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been a workaholic, so it makes sense that the idea of using it for work avoidance wouldn't be something that would work for me. Right. Because working has never been my problem. Not working is sort of a problem for me, but but just doing work and forcing myself to do work is uh, comes very naturally to me. Well, and I think uh, in that way, what you said earlier is true in that you are unique and in that you, you kind of thrive on that work. You thrive on the idea of deadlines, but anything that kind of makes the art feel more like homework is probably going to be a negative for most, most artists. Yeah, whereas for me, the first thing I do when I wake up is I sit down and I write a to-do list, and mm-hmm. I get a, a great deal of satisfaction from checking off things on that to-do list. Right. Um, and even little things or things that I would do normally, I have every single week ley lines upkeep a section dedicated to it and i list out you know color this amount of pages color one page one color page two ink page one ink page two um and if i don't do that to-do list they don't get done but if i have the to-do list they get done usually early and i have more time to do other things so for me finishing is just sort of like this plotting mechanical you know check the box activity And but, that's good for somebody who's really analytical. Mm-hmm. I think if we're talking about methods by which other people can kind of get to that ending um, and work through, and, and then I, I guess from my perspective, the real trick here is less getting to the ending and uh, less trying to work through that perfectionistic need to rework, but it's it's the letting it go part. The idea that, okay, I've gotten here. It's good enough to let other people see how do how do I let it into the world? How how do I uh, not be super nervous and not have that need to go back and be a perfectionist? I think that that's the more salient thing for me. Well, oddly enough, that's what it became when I was actually doing the ending piece. Okay. I, I think a lot of people don't ever manage to necessarily get to the place where they're ending a project, but when I was actually ending Shades of Grey, that was the lesson I had to learn. Because, the, you know, how Matt was talking about this need to tie everything up. Right. I felt that that pressure, and it, it felt like, you know, I've been working on this project for eight years. So I need to have a finale that's, you know, that's worthy of all the time I have poured into it. But putting that pressure on it is basically like saying, okay, everything good that I've done in eight years, now I have to do all at once in one scene. And it became this huge weight of, you know no scene is good enough, no event is good enough. Even though I had had planned out the ending, suddenly I didn't know how to actually do it. I'd had it planned for eight years, and when I got there, I couldn't do it because no means of execution felt good enough. And I did have to go through a process of of letting go of that expectation and just letting it be whatever it was. Right. I definitely think there's a, there's a piece of it there. Um, the thing that gets me about this is I feel like uh, that that nervousness, that feeling like the work doesn't have a lot of value, can stem from what a lot of artists suffer from, which is that negative self-image. If if I'm not a good person, how can my work be good? How can other people like it? Will they use it to judge me? And the thing that kind of I think is strange about this is. Robin, you're the most prolific artist I know, personally, and you get more stuff done than anybody. But you also have what I would think is a more negative self-image. Definitely than me, but you get more done than me. And 
I, th I think that's odd because I think most artists will struggle with the negative self-image and that will be a reason why they won't post something and won't let something go. Huh. Whereas for me, uh, I, that is sort of an interesting point because a lot of people that do have that negative self-image, it becomes very crippling. Whereas for me, I guess I'm, I have a little bit of an element of, um, I've always felt that I would die young. I just, it, ever since I was a kid, I was convinced that I would die when I was young. And I wanted, I didn't feel like I as a person mattered enough to anyone to be missed. So creating something that would be somewhat independent of me, that people could judge my existence by independent of myself, had a lot of appeal because then I felt that my work could survive. But since I, you know, was convinced I would die young, I had to, I had to start working now because I didn't feel like I had the option to wait until like a lot of people are like, well, I'll, re when I retire, that's when I'll do my great novel or what? Like I fully did not, ex I thought I'd be dead by now as a kid. I did not expect to make it past 25. So there, for me, there wasn't an option of waiting to create that great thing because I didn't think I'd, I'd get there. So, like, the fear of death is what motivates me. I don't know what... These days yeah, I'm trying to get um, access to uh, passion. Just being passionate and letting that... Because I think underneath that fear, there's always been the passion. Right. And learning to access that and bring that out is sort of... Is my current personal mission. And, and I think I, it's a healthier motivator. Well, well, I think it's fascinating having that kind of uh, self-image thing be such a... Well, I guess what is a negative motivator. Um... I don't know how useful that is for advice for other people because <laughs> run you know, from death. Run. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like so how 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 can you feel confident enough to let let a piece of your work go into the world? Just well, the answer the is mortal terror. <laughs> you, you know, fear. Fear is fear. why you let it go because as scared as you are of other people looking and judging at your work, it is not nearly as scary as the specter of death. As and the like, void like, that you I must mean, stare into. I, don't get me wrong. There are probably some people out there who will hear that and be like, man, that that is right on. And, and Corey, <laughs> you shut up because she knows what she's talking about. But I have a feeling there's going to also be a lot of people who are going to be like, well, that's no help to me at all. I don't know if I would recommend as a motivational tool the fear of the specter of death. Right. But, <laughs> but you asked, and that's that's the answer that I have, so... Um, well, I hey, think that Matt, the, yeah. the answer is that we need to go and we need to find our listeners and we need to stand behind them with a knife making <laughs> e -e 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 noises until they they do something. I think you might be onto something there. And I also think that I need to now relinquish my law license. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Matt, I remember when you when you went to Thailand, um, I remember you talking about how you had been uh thinking to yourself that if you didn't do it now, you never would. So why not do it now? And then you did. Like, there is an element there that, of, of, of why wait? Don't, why, why wait until this, this, this tomorrow that may never come? Why not just start right now and do something and see it through and see what happens? And I think that that is a sort of an important that that I think is a healthier version of my fear of death. <laughs> yeah, um, there was that kind of reminds me of another thing is uh, 
um, so many people have asked me now that Robin and I are married, my, my parents are like, so, you know, when are you, when are you going to have kids? And my grandparents have been like, oh yeah, maybe, maybe you're going to have some, some grandkids for us. And, and our response has universally been kind of like, you know, our, our projects, our baby right now, someday we'll be parents, but right now that's kind of off the table. But I always thought that was kind of, kind of a, you know, I, I'm sure they view it as a cop-out, but at the same time, I think it's really, really salient. Your work is your child, and in that in that way, it's you have that fear of uh, of letting it out into the world. But simultaneously, everybody who's had a kid tells me there's no perfect time. There's never a perfect time to have a kid. Well, guess what? There's never going to be a perfect time for you to sit down and write. When by the time you uh, retire. I feel the only thing that uh, will matter is now you will be so used to not having free time, you will not know what to do with it when it when it's there, and and you'll be so far behind the curve on learning how to writing technique, you won't be any good at it. So I, I'm with you. Why wait? And um, maybe maybe that is a, a technique for helping people release the thing. It's, so you've got it out there. You want to be better. You want to write the next thing. You, you, you want to improve. You want to uh, get the feedback, take it in, maybe write a sequel. But you can't do that if you don't release this, so why wait? Well, and I think there's also a lot that uh, – one of the things that I hear so often is, well, I have this great story, but I'm waiting until I'm good enough. Right, yeah. And I've the fact of the matter is that you will never be good enough – like, good enough is not something you can achieve. Well, especially there's, when you're your not... own critic. Yeah. You will never well, be good enough to satisfy yourself. That, and you will never be... The the level that you hope to reach, you will never reach without doing the work badly first. If that makes sense. Absolutely. You, 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 you have to just start and accept that you're not going to be 100% happy with whatever it is that you start on. But you will be building up the skills required to do something better and then at that point again something better um but unless you you start and you go through the process of a project and you finish the process of a project and you you get a handle on how that feels you can't build up to bigger things because you you never let yourself begin well like i said earlier you're gonna always suck at writing endings unless you write endings unless you get to them yeah, and I guess that's what you were saying. Like, Joss Whedon's not had a lot of practice. Yeah, yeah. And as a result, his endings are often a little bit shaky in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, when we're working with kids right now in writing, and one of the things that we're, we talk about a lot is building up writing stamina, which I think is sort of an interesting concept when you take a step back from it. Because we sort of uh, think as, at least I often think about writing as just something that you know, you, you sit down and you put a timer or you have a task and you just work on that until, you, until you're done, right? And that's just sort of an innate, everyone has that ability. But the way that we actually teach it is sort of like, you know, you start out training for a marathon. You don't start with running a marathon. You build up your stamina for writing. And I think that that is something that's actually overlooked a lot. Um, one of the biggest advices to writers is if you want to be a writer, write. Write every day. And I think what instead of saying, you know, sit down and, and have a, a set amount of time, what that's actually saying is train, build your stamina for writing. When you first start out writing every day, you might only write for five minutes. And the day after that, maybe you might manage 10. 
And eventually you might work up to being able to write nonstop for an entire day. But you're probably not going to start writing for an entire day, day one. <laughs> That's not where you're going to begin. Right. Um, and I just, I've been thinking more and more about writing in, in, this, in the terms of building stamina lately. What's well, a skill? It's, it, yeah, writing it's a writing skill. is a skill, and you've you got to practice it to get better at it. But, well, yeah. I, to an extent, I, I agree that there's, that the only way to get better at writing is writing. And I think that there's in the SCA, um, one of the sayings that we have is that nothing prepares you for Penzik except Penzik. Penzik is our biggest war of the year. It frequently has more than 10,000 people. That is a huge, huge um, event. <laughs> right. And so nothing, no, no other SCA war is even close. I mean, the other ones we get are 3,000. So we say that the only the only thing to prepare you for Penzik is Penzik, and I think that that's true too. Um, for here, you'll never know what writing a novel is like until you write a novel. So start writing it. Mm-hmm. Because, I find it interesting that we're trying to talk about finishing things, and we're mostly talking about beginnings. Well, because you can have a beginning without an ending, but you can't have an ending without a beginning. I mean, you can. You can just go write an ending, but when you show it to someone, they'll go. Okay, that's great, but where's the rest of it? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I yeah, I I guess that's that's funny. It's the, the so the thing is is learn to let go and our answer is practice letting go. Yeah. Yeah. Become a Chicago Cubs fan. Get used to disappointment. <laughs> according according to uh Back to the Future two. They're going to win the pennant next year. Oh, that's right. That's not uh-huh. going to happen, but... <laughs> <laughs> they've, they've got a whole year to do it. They, the, 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 the 2015 that. season has yet to begin. Although, to be fair, did I think it was that they... Um, I think Back to the Future did nail one where they said that... Um, what was it? Like, um, uh, Tampa Bay would win. Or the the team that would become the Devil Rays and now just the Rays, uh, that there would that that a team from that city would win the World Cup in a year that they actually did win the World Cup. And the joke was that at the time uh, that Back to the Future was made, they didn't even have a team. Right. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, who knows? We could be. Yeah. If we're watching that, then we officially need to either like start worshiping yeah, so or if, start if burning as witches. Is- if Back to the Future is actually involved. prophetic, that'd be kind of awesome, but also in a weird way horrifying. Well, they, they would also have to release 13 Jaws films between now and next October. Oh, okay. Whew. Dodge that bullet. However, Jaws 19 was supposed to be in 3D. <gasps> and that's back. Um, <laughs> no Flying Skateboards by Mattel, though. They need to get on that. Oh, I know. I've been waiting for one of those since I was, like, five. Right? Oh, God, yes. No, yeah. I want to be pulled behind a car on one of them and not die, because you can do it on a skateboard, but I'd die. Right. But but with a hoverboard. I mean, they even strap onto your feet. Which totally would not result in something horrible that would get posted on YouTube. <laughs> that That is the secret side of... Uh... That would be hilarious. Various uh, shots from... YouTube uh, fails of hoverboarding. Of, 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 yeah, 2015 via Back to the Future. 
Oh, man. Okay, so, um, on the subject of endings, with Back to the Future, <laughs> um, I swear I'm going to correlate this as soon as I come up with what I'm thinking of. But, uh, anyway. But were you correlating with what? I... I'm just trying to tie us back in. I, I got us so off, far off topic, I was trying to pretend like it was part of my plan the whole time. Oh, okay. That's where I was going with it. Of course. I failed. Corey, I, I am sure that that is what is happening. Uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm glad you have faith. Yes. Super faith. Super oh. faith. <laughs> okay, fine. All right, stuff in the middle. <laughs> quick, quick, drop the stuff in the middle card. That's right. <laughs> So, what's inspiring you guys this week? I had a really cool dream. And a really interesting dream. Mm-hmm. That has sort of rekindled a lot of my energy for new projects. Um, which I have not had for almost half a year now. This um, is some of the things that happened in March. But... Um, this dream was a really, really interesting dream. Um... I don't know how much I should go into it because often I've heard that one of the worst things you can talk about is dreams. I guess I always think that weird and interesting dreams are interesting, but apparently that's not shared by the average American. I, I only heard that rule this year that you shouldn't talk to other people about their dream, your dreams because they're not interested. I have never found that to be true. You only heard hear that rule dreams. this year? I've yeah. heard that rule for years. Well, I'm I not also saying find don't talk BS. about your dream. I, because if like there's one thing that dreams. having your own podcast is good for, it's goddamn talking about your dreams. Well, I, I like hearing <laughs> about dreams. I think dreams are fascinating. People who don't listen to dreams are very, very selfish. Well, <laughs> selfish. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, oh, I don't want to hear about your dreams. Having insight into you? Jeez. Pff, oh, man. I'd rather not know you at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Then I basically the gist of the dream is that um, I was in a city where people were slowly being corrupted or changed. Something was something was very very wrong. And the beginning of the dream was very horror like because it had a lot of repetitive, like things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Um, people and the the infection would show up as one of two ways: is either people would start getting really um, patterny in how they would behave or they would kind of become uh, saccharine sweet and you got the impression that they were always watching and looking um, at, at, at you and observing people um, with some sort of sinister means of, in mind and I was one of a few people that were sort of aware that something was going wrong but didn't know how to stop it and this storm started to brew and there was this increasing, like the, you could feel the tension coming to a head. And there were two women that were left by the end of the, of the end of this storm climax. It was besides me. Um, and one was this very strong, bulky, like just huge arms woman. And the other one was a, a very thin waif like person that had been so afraid she'd been hiding in a closet for most of the dream. And when the storm hit its peak, the woman that had been hiding in the closet sort of emerged, but instead of being afraid anymore, she was filled with this intense feeling of purpose and knowledge. And she had these tattoos that had appeared all over her body and was able to tell us what was happening. And what 
it was that what was going on was that these aliens had come down and were possessing people and corrupting people and that the earth had one means of sort of fighting off these aliens which was to create these these blooms that had to be fertilized by a human being becoming like a spore colony but the aliens would attack or make people change if they thought that they would potentially be a pollinator for the flowers so everyone who was a pollinator had already been taken except for me i was one so i turned into like this fairy and flew up into this huge storm and these spores appeared on my back and you know then aliens ate me but for the flying part that was really cool <laughs> i woke up and went that would kind of if i adapted it could be a really cool young adult novel I think I could do something really interesting with that. Um, and that's really just rekindled this desire to do other projects and to try new things. Um, even if I don't end up doing them, I always used to have like this little background what if um, energy. And I haven't had that for a really long time. And I didn't realize that it was gone until it came back. And it's really a great relief to have it. So I'm just really curious about what I will do with that. And I think I might, I don't know, maybe I'll start writing a novel someday. <laughs> so that's my weird dream. Hopefully it wasn't as boring as dreams are to other people. But to no, me, no, it no. was really cool. I, I think it's just great having that inspiration back. I mean, it's been said, you don't know how good it is until it's back. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize it was gone, but once it came back, it was it was a big great feeling matt what's up with you this week so i finally have one that is not me um <laughs> but it is someone it in is... my family oh. <laughs> well, i love that caveat that, that i almost made it go on um so my cousin stephen parker is uh an actor out in hollywood and he wrote a musical parody of Lost what? that is running for six weeks, uh, funded successfully by Kickstarter. And um, they are doing it in a theater, and they have um, actual members of the Lost cast that have shown up um, because it's cool. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just absolutely thrilled to uh, watch him doing such a good and fundamentally weird project. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, so if you are in California, they are running um, through Sunday, October 26th at the Lillian Theater. At Santa Monica Boulevard, one west, uh, one block west of Vine in Hollywood. Cool. Um, essentially, it's the entire run of Lost in two hours of song. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Complete with three alternate endings. <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, I, I assume my, clue style and each more confusing than the last. I hope so. I haven't actually seen it. I wish I had the money to go out to California. And if I'd gotten this job like three months ago, I would be on a plane to go see it. Yeah. But um, maybe they can yeah, film it for you. 
Um, I'd like them to record it so I can see it. Yeah. But yeah, and so what's inspiring me this week is someone in my family who is seizing on a dream and and going for it and funding it and, and making it work, even if the dream is to write a musical uh, about Lost the entire run of the show in two hours. I, I hope he's seizing a dream and not seizing on a dream. No, yes. Well, you know what I mean. I don't think he lost. is stealing a dream from someone and making it his own. I think he is taking a dream uh, that is his and going with it. Yeah, well, great artist, uh, great artist steal. <laughs> well, to be fair, they are stealing from Lost. It is not authorized. <laughs> it is a parody. They will be relying very heavily on that parody law that we talked about on the Webcomic Alliance. Fair use. <laughs> Yeah. Transformative. Yep. Transformative okay. work. Six seasons into two hours is has to be transformative. Yeah, that's, that's right. Transformation pretty much guaranteed to occur. Cool. Um, I guess for me, um, I'm about a year late to the party because this last weekend I finished Bioshock Infinite, which I had yet to play, and I had managed to uh uh seal myself away from the spoilers and I'm glad I did because I I enjoyed it and not to spoil it for any of you out there but I personally thought the surprise ending was very very uh, poignant uh, that that they took what could have been a really really silly premise and made it land emotionally which is not a small feat and um, as controversial as some of the parts of it uh, specifically in the ending were, I felt like it was really, really good thematically and that it was the kind of ending I would like to write. So anyway, I'm just inspired that there are people out there who can take something fundamentally silly and make it fundamentally moving. So that's, that's my inspiration. Pooh is on our list to go head to head today. I guess it's Matt and myself. Give me a twisted Aesop's fable. Want to try your hand at this spontaneous prompt? Take a moment to pause the recording, put about 15 minutes on the clock, and write the best response you can. Feel free to share them with us at info at mocopress.com, or you can always comment on the page for this recording. Let us know if you'd like us to share them on the air with the rest of our fellow adventurers. Gather round, children. Today we will hear the tale of clever Benjamin Bright and his dim-witted friend, Danny Dunce. One day, Benjamin Bright and Danny Dunce were walking to school when something shiny caught their eyes. Look, Bright said, the comic shop has a new issue of Captain Violence. Let's get it. <laughs> I don't know, Dunce said. We're going to be late for class. Don't worry, Bright said. We'll, get, uh, we'll just say that the dog got out of Mrs. Jameson's yard and chased us. We had to climb up a tree and wait until he left before we could climb down and get to school. Will that really work? Dunce asked skeptically. Well, if one of us said us, the teacher would probably think that we were lying, Bright said. But if we both get our stories straight, he'll have to believe us. Okay, Dunce said, and the pair went into the shop. When Bright brought the comic to the re uh, register, he felt around in his pocket for a moment. Shucks, I forgot my wallet at home. Dunce, do you have a dollar? Dunce frowned. I don't even read Captain Violence. Maybe you should just pick it up after you get home from school. Don't be silly, Bright said. Just give me a dollar, then I can read the comic, and afterward you can keep it, since you bought it. 
Dunst shrugged and then reached into his pack for a dollar. Bright grabbed it and paid for the comic. He then went to the stoop to read. When he finished, he put the comic into his backpack. Hey, Dunst said, you said that I could keep it. I'll give it to you after class, Bright said. Mr. Stern won't believe that a dog kept us in a tree for that long. Dunst frowned, but nodded and followed his friend to school. Right before they got inside, Bright stopped his friend. Dunst, even if we tell the same story, Mr. Stern might not buy it. We need evidence. Evidence, Dunst asked. What do you mean? Well, Bright said, maybe we should make it look like we got some bruises while climbing down from the tree. Here, hit me in the eye. Dunst shook his head. I don't think that's such a good idea. Come on, do you want to get caught? No, Dunst said. All right. Dunst hit Bright just below the eye. Harder, Bright said. It needs to have a bruise. Dunst hit him a bit harder, and Bright's eye began to swell. Bright smiled and said, let's go. When they got inside, Mr. Stern stopped teaching and gave them both a hard look. And why are you boys so late to class? Well, Dunst said, Mrs. Jameson's dog got out of the yard and chased us up a tree. It took a long time to get away, and uh, when, we, uh, when it d- left, we climbed down and we ran here. Mr. Stern gave a terse nod. Benjamin, is that what happened? No, Bright said. Danny wanted my new comic, and he punched me in the eye. Mrs. Jameson doesn't even have a dog. And so, Dunst got sent to the principal's office, and Bright got to keep a comic he never paid for. So, remember this moral, children. It's always useful to have someone dumber around to take the fall. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I like that uh, your version of Aesop's fable involves somebody shouting, Me harder! (laughs) I thought it was like the opening to Fight Club. That's what I was thinking, because it reminded me of Fight Club. No, I like that. It was also... Captain Violence maybe appearing on a t-shirt and border. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty good. All right. Good old Captain Violence. All right, go for it. I don't get it, the young man said as he looked up to his father. The two of them were standing quietly over the body of the wolf, considering it. Well, you see, Jacob, his father said, stroking his bare chin as if he had a beard. They shared a look for a moment that said, we both wish you had a beard, so just get to it, okay? <laughs> it was a meaningful look. <laughs> Jacob waited a few minutes, idly wishing he'd grabbed a cloak. Both of them were standing in their night clothes, and Jacob hadn't even bothered grabbing shoes. Finally, he asked, I see what? Uh, his father tried groping around for a story. A man shouldn't blow hot and cold, he answered finally, a pronouncement for the ages by his tone, echoing into the night. Jacob considered this for a moment. Nope, pull the other one, candy comes out. His father nodded as if this was an expected response. The chin-stroking recommenced. Another look was shared. Well, you see, Jacob, his father announced as if inspiration had struck. There was once an ant and a grasshopper. Jacob let out a teenage groan of frustration and shook his head. Nope, I did the work because I'm the one that grabbed the spear. You did work today, too. None of us has been lazy, and there isn't a starving anybody around because they didn't. You got a third? Well, you see, Jacob, his father began after a moment. There was once a boy who cried wolf. Right, Jacob interrupted. And that was bad because there wasn't a wolf. But I cried wolf, and there is, demonstrably, a goddamn dead wolf on the ground. And if I hadn't cried wolf, he would have eaten the sheep. And we would have either been forced to sell Bessie the cow or my sister to eat for the winter, and no one would have been happy. He was angry now, red in the face. So any other stupid morals? His father nodded again before he smiled. The end, he offered, turning to go. No! Jacob shouted, throwing a clot of dirt at the back of his father's head. I'm so sick of this crap! We run our farm by funny little aphorisms. We plant based on the farmer's almanac. Jacob shouted in anger as he went back to the one-room farmhouse to start packing a bag. And I'm tired of it! He came back out and waved his bag at his father. 
I'm leaving. I'm going to the city, and I'm going to study science, rules of the universe, and every book of fables or witticisms or almanac that, I'm fi- that I find, I'm going to throw into a furnace, he shouted as he stormed off. Finally, when Jacob was far down the road, his mother came out to his father. His father watched sadly before he finally spoke. Neither a lender nor a borrower be. The mother sighed. That Aesop was a real son of a bitch, Marcus. Actually, that was Shakespeare. The mother sighed again. Here's a moral for you. Shut your pie hole, Marcus. I don't think his dad's an idiot. I think his dad's, like, mentally ill. <laughs> like, that was a, the sad tale of a son rejecting an ailing father who desperately needs to be sent to a home. Possibly. Wow. The, the, the only moral I could think of was why it's a bad idea to try to live your life by Aesop's morals. And so... That's clever, though. That's... Wow. <laughs> all right then i don't even know what to think about that one yeah when when a guy speaks only in quotes you know in in a film that's endearing in real life that's a serious mental health problem (laughs) It, it is possible his father was autistic but since that's way darker than i wanted to go we're just gonna ignore it i'm not convinced you didn't pull that off (laughs) (laughs) all right (laughs) take away time oh geez um neither of us should be let to write fables for children (laughs) yeah that's my takeaway clear okay okay um i guess my takeaway today is that um it's it's good to uh let go to move on uh, even if you're planning on coming back, because uh, that experience that you gain from having moved on will make the next story in this world better, if you even want to come back to it. So I think it's a really, really good thing to move on, and if you're having trouble moving on, um, having that, that uh, voice within you that kind of reminds you that you're going to improve by moving on is good. For me, it's uh, finishing something is a skill. So... It needs to be practiced and stamina needs to be built up for it. So if it's something that you struggle to do, shorten the duration in which you need to try and work on something to finish it. So pick out small tasks and practice just finishing something. I think that that actually could really help build up the ability to finish other projects. Cool. And do these little writing prompts with us, because each of them has to come to an end. You can't just write them for seven years and then stop. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, and I think what, what I'm taking away is that, it, I've ta- and I've taken it away before, uh, when last time we kind of talked about endings, is that endings are hard. And there is a great temptation to put it all out in a rush, to tie up every loose end, and to, to, to put that perfect bow on everything. And sometimes what we need is the room for you to come back. Sometimes what we need is the ability for someone to return to it later. So leave a little bit of mystery and stick to the ending that you, your series needs. Don't try to keep it going just to keep things going. Don't try to get cute. And like, like Robin said, 
it, essentially what it comes down to is don't be afraid of the ending. Cause, and, and I thought that that was the best part, or not the best part, but that was a good part that, that you brought up, Robin. So many people are afraid of endings because when it's ended, it's over, and you have to walk away, and it's done, and it has to stand on its own. Embrace that as an opportunity to show what your work has really been about. Don't be afraid of it. I think that's great. Yeah. That really hits the nail on the head. All right. To end this podcast, Matthew, where can we find your work? You can find my ongoing project, Border Kansas, now with 100% less clown sex than this podcast, and always with 100% less clown sex than this podcast, at <laughs> www.border-ks.com. So guarantee like that, how can we resist? <laughs> my website is leylinescomic.com. You can also find our work at mocopress.com. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and you would like to support us, please head over to patreon.com slash mocopress. We're actually in the process of overhauling everything, adding in brand new reward levels, and we have altered our goals to make them get us closer to getting ley lines back up to three times a week. So if you would like more comic, more content, that's the way to help us do it. So thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thank you all for listening. And have a wonderful night. Music for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com.